0: intimidating at the beginning because you're naïve, you don't know exactly what you're doing. And I used to call it my very emotional years, because mm-hmm. uh, a little five-minute set, I would get very, very nervous beforehand. And if my set didn't go well, I would be devastated emotionally, you wouldn't, couldn't talk to me. <laughs> and I, I look back on it, and I just kind of laugh at myself, and my wife kind of goes, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> but it, it, it's just a process, it's just how you grow.
1: Welcome to episode two of the Nervous Comic Podcast with Tim Kabashik. Tim is a stand-up comedian, but he does occasionally sit down to have a conversation. And in fact, he was sitting right across from me when we did this interview. I'm Elaine Elrod. I'm a friend of Tim's, and through my company, Active Listening Productions, I'm helping him to set up this podcast We thought it would be a great idea if I interviewed him so you can get to know him and get some insights into the world of stand-up comedy. We had so much great material that this episode is in two parts, so after you listen to this episode, episode 2, part 1, you can listen to episode 2, part 2. And be sure to check out episode 1 which is a live recording of one of Tim's performances at the Comedy Factory in Edmonton, Alberta. And we hope that you subscribe to the podcast and add it to your favorites because there's going to be lots more good stuff to come. Enjoy the interview. So we've talked about comedy before, Tim, right? A few times. (laughs) Yes, but I'm very excited about this interview because I get to ask all these questions that I'm curious about. To get the ball rolling, how did you get started in comedy?
0: How did I get started in comedy? I can attribute it to a lot of things. Maybe my uncles who laughed at my stupid jokes when I was eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> but one year, back in the 90s, there was actually a course for stand-up comedy. And it's kind of hard to teach stand-up comedy, but there was a regular headliner who's still performing, Kenny Velgertsen And... He had a course, and so we helped us develop material. We practiced in front of our classmates. And with help from Kenny, we uh, got to a point where we graduated. We went to Yuck Yucks and performed our first stand-up show at West Edmonton Mall.
1: What was it that got you to take that class? Did you think about it for a while before you actually took it, or what was that like? Uh,
0: it was something I always wanted to do, really. And when I saw it, it, it was, I did a little bit of thinking going, oh, should I do it? Or should I not? And that little voice inside of me was just like, oh, yeah, we got to take this. We got to see where it'll go. And it just hooked in ever since. Of course, I've never stopped.
1: And after you finished the class, then what were the next steps after that?
0: Of course, the graduation night there. And then there was a, a regular open mic night at Yuck Yucks, and. We used to go there religiously every Thursday to listen to the performing headliner. would talk about stand-up comedy and answer any questions. At the time, Yuck Yucks was the only club there, so we would always be there hanging out, talking to the regular comedians, trying to get extra spots on other weekdays, trying to have our own open mic nights. But it was just a long process, but it was fun.
1: And if you had to explain it to somebody, what would you say the whole journey has been like to become a good comedian? Because I think with disciplines like music or acting, people understand that it takes practice and study, but there may be the perception out there for comedians that you're just born a comedian, and the first time you get on stage, you just hit the ball out of the park.
0: Yes. Uh, Jim Carrey was an overnight success. It just took him 15 years. Uh, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's very true for most comedians. There's a long process of bad shows, (laughs) some good shows. There's trying to figure out who you are as a comedian, your character. There's a lot of things to learn along the way and just trying to be funny to relate to the audience. It's very frustrating It's intimidating at the beginning because you're naive. You don't know exactly what you're doing. And I used to call it my very emotional years Mm -hmm. because a little five-minute set, I would get very, very nervous beforehand and to the point where I wouldn't eat, I wouldn't talk to people. And if my set didn't go well, this little five-minute set that didn't really bear a lot I would be devastated emotionally he wouldn't couldn't talk to me (laughs) I I look back on it and I just kind of laugh at myself and my wife kind of goes oh yeah I remember (laughs) I'm like oh I wish you wouldn't (laughs) but it's it's just a process it's just how you grow and even comedians like Jerry Seinfeld will tell you it takes years to develop five years you're like a five-year-old you know 10 years you are like a 10-year-old 15 years you're just a teenager you're still developing there's learning all the time. There's lots of great books I've discovered. The Comedy Bible by Judy Carter is a standard almost cliche one but when I started reading it I really got a lot out of it. And I've recommended it to other aspiring comedians it's helped them too. There's also another book called Zen and the Art of Mm -hmm. (laughs) Stand-Up I think it's Jay Sankey and that's a fantastic book actually. It kind of wanders into that gray area of these are the general rules but if you can do it the other way (laughs) that's okay too.
1: Okay so when you were talking about the emotional years (laughs) I love that Uh, (laughs) the five minute sets that if they didn't go well you were very discouraged what was it that kept you going Had somebody warned you about that, or or what was it that made you decide that this is not something to stop me, that I am going to keep going?
0: Although I'd be very discouraged, I had a good core group of comedians learning with me who would be very supportive. You know, they would be like, oh, it's okay, keep trying it. And as well, some of the full-time comedians, they would be very encouraging too, although sometimes they would really sort of uh, bust your chops because... (laughs) before a show sometimes i remember this one guy would walk around and going tough crowd really tough crowd out there (laughs) just just to kind of rankle us a little bit and
1: it's kind of like a hazing kind of thing (laughs) yeah
0: oh yeah yeah and i enjoyed being around the other comedians i enjoyed the creativity even though i would really be sad about it i knew i'd get over it and have another opportunity and as it was back then, probably better back then, when you finally, the stars aligned and you had this fantastic show. It was the best feeling ever. It was energizing and it would (laughs) kinda keep you pushing along.
1: So how long did you have to wait to have that experience? Or did you have it right away and then it went away and came back?
0: It started off really well because on the opening set I did, I got a lot of laughs and a lot of encouragement.
1: You mean right after the class?
0: Right after the class Uh and graduation. It was a good set. I I wouldn't say, you know, the best in the world, but I got laughs. I mean, I was just like, look at me, I'm a stand-up comedian. (laughs) And so, and then I had a few of the guys going, yeah, you did really good. I think the other part that causes problems is that you experiment with things. So raising your voice and, and, and doing different things, and they don't really click, and so then you almost feel like you're trapped for five minutes doing this new thing that's not going over at all and it's very quiet or there's one person laughing and they're just laughing because you're so bad. Oh. Uh, and it's, it's discouraging but then uh, something will happen the next show and things will just click and you'll be the star of that show.
1: It, is that experimentation and failure necessary do you think?
0: absolutely yeah there's no cookie cutter there's basic concepts but whenever i talk to other comedians and besides the did the audience laugh how do you feel did you have fun just what kind of humor you have i've heard other people corner other newer comedians and say things that just drive me crazy like you can do that joke in alberta but you can't do it in saskatoon (laughs) which is just
1: crazy and Could you explain to some of the listeners might not be familiar with the differences, or just like what the context of that joke is like I mean what that saying that what what would they be talking about when they said that?
0: Well, they were trying to put it in context for a location, like mm-hmm. from it could be one city to another one, yeah, and there is some points there, like if you start we're talking about the local hockey team here, obviously. It wouldn't get the same laughs or context over there. But if it's just a general, you know, hey, my girlfriend hates me because I always eat all the Cheetos. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think people in place B know what Cheetos are and they've had relationships, so yes, it's...
1: Okay, okay. Where did the idea for your moniker, the Nervous Comic, where did that come from?
0: That was... Twofold. fold A friend suggested it after seeing me sweat on stage. I was really, really nervous, like I. And in fact, I I think I incorporated it as being my act where I would almost be stuttering. Well, not almost. I was stuttering, and it seemed like I would, could get laughs there. And I think I was experimenting a bit. And then he said, "Hey, how about the nervous comic?" And I'm like, "Sure, I'm always nervous." <laughs> <laughs> It just kind of stuck, and it just—it just seems it's a nice, good moniker. I I, I still enjoy it, and uh, even though I'm nowhere near as nervous as I was before.
1: Yeah, it kind of gives you some perspective, I guess, and you can laugh at it more now. And
0: yeah, and it just really—I uh, can talk about the road of where it led to and where it is.
1: And how would you prepare for an upcoming show nowadays?
0: Reviewing my set, of course few days before looking over my material is sort of an obvious one I guess but before a show just really taking care of yourself being hydrated getting enough sleep being relaxed showing up early breathing exercises voice exercises and I still get nervous so I have to walk around just to wear that off talking to myself and sometimes I even pray before I go on
1: oh cool okay You were talking before about that necessary experimentation and sometimes failure. And so this question is about new material. Like, how often do you introduce something new to your act?
0: Well, not as often as I should. There's there's two aspects to it. Sometimes I do get an idea, and I'll put it in the middle. And I try to put something in once a month, but I, I should probably do more. The other side of new stuff is... As I've been developing my act I've always enjoyed really interacting with the crowd and seeing where they're at and when I do that sometimes different words come out from what I planned and or sometimes the crowd will actually say something and I'll really write that down and I'll use it for the next one because of just the way the timing worked the way their responses were or and sometimes my response to the regular bit is a little different and I change it a little bit and it gets a better reaction and I'm like yeah write it down, write it down, remember, remember,
1: use that from now on. So you said that you should introduce new material more often and what would be keeping you from doing that?
0: Well, of course new material isn't as refined, doesn't get the laughs, it doesn't feel as comfortable and, of course, it might bomb too. They might just look at you. You spend a lot of time developing your material and then you get comfortable with it and it, and you perform it and everything lights up. The audience lights up like clockwork. You know you can do it. And then you bring in something new and it's a little awkward and the crowd's a little off and they're not quite sure. And so it's just that getting out of that comfort zone, basically, for comedians. You, get, you have to push yourself to put the new material in because new material takes you to that next level. You, you always wanna get to the next spot from an opening with maybe opener for with 10 or 15 minutes to maybe a middle act with 15 to 20 and then a headliner with at least 45 minutes of material. You always wanna build that. And then when you have your 45, maybe another 45 and so that you have a variety because your audiences will always be you come to a very different audience you know it's a biker bar or a seniors home or a children's birthday party <laughs> you just never know and then you're going oh well I guess my jokes about relationships and getting drunk in the bar aren't going to go over <laughs> with these three-year-olds you know <laughs> and, and it's just like or e- even a church.
1: Have you actually performed for children?
0: Yes. Oh, okay.
1: I saw you at this Fort Saskatchewan, Fort Scott talent show performing in front of a mixed audience.
0: And Yeah, that's, that's kind of an example of it, but probably the f- funnest experience I had. It was another variety show. It was at the, the Glen Rose Hospital. They have an auditorium, and I worked there, and we had a variety show, all different kinds of talents, and I was doing my stand-up routine, and there was a lot of um, adults in there. I didn't notice all the children And then I kind of noticed, and so then I knew I had to be clean, so then I introduced some of these kid jokes, you know, like, you know, what do you call a bear with (laughs) no ears? And it's like, buh. (laughs) And then, you know, and and they were laughing. and, And then I did another joke about riding my bike in the mountains and then, you know, worried that the bears will see me and that they'll think I stole their bicycle. And the best part was is that my friends whose kids... Thought those jokes were funny. We're explaining it to them, <laughs> and they're going, "Yes, Reese, I know why it's funny. Yes, I know, but the bear with no ears. Don't you get it?" <laughs> it was just like,
1: <laughs> "Oh, that's cute." So, in what you said about what keeps you from introducing new material, do you think that's a fairly common pattern with comedians that they? get something that works and then it's very difficult to introduce that new stuff or to find a way to introduce that new stuff
0: I think it's a challenge for most comedians because we get the material becomes part of us we love it, you know, it's almost like our kids you know, it's our stuff, the big sin in the comedy world is to steal somebody else's material, mm-hmm. even though it does happen mm-hmm. it is probably the worst thing you can do and far beyond parallel fly that happens too, you know, like, mm-hmm. who doesn't have a photo radar joke, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then there's even jokes about that, you know, because I'll come in, I'll talk to the guys going, hey, hey, hey. I do the jokes about married people, you know, like, <laughs> like I do the jokes about relationships, oh, I do the jokes about drinking, oh, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know. So you're saying the comedian thinks of their set as something that they're very attached to, and so that's another reason why you might not Break out the new stuff so easily.
0: If you talk to any group of comedians and they and they'll talk about how much you you know you start new and just to, and some guys are very brave you know they're just like oh I, I, every year I go. Some people will be like well just a couple minutes every month
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, even Jerry Seinfeld when he finished the Seinfeld series in 2000 and he made a movie called Comedian it was all about mostly about his journey starting with a brand new set and touring as Jerry Seinfeld. And, of course, with all that fame from the Seinfeld show and and a very well-established comedian, even without the Seinfeld sitcom and solid, solid bits, to just start out from the beginning is very, very brave. I mean, everybody's like, (gasps) really?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I saw that movie, too, and what struck me was when he said, yeah... Being Jerry Seinfeld will make me successful on stage with a new set for five minutes, but after that, I have to be funny, right? Just like anybody else.
0: Yeah, that's the uh, justice in it all.
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a little bit about this, that when you're interacting with the audience, sometimes something happens that you'll then incorporate into the act. Are there Have there been any other jokes that you can think of that were born spontaneously while you were performing that you then used again?
0: Some of my humor self-deprecating. And I had this joke about being a really bad single person and going to the bar, drinking till I was good looking. <laughs> then I would talk about being a happy meal date, you know, cheap, always available at 3am. And I always wait for it because I wait for the smart ass in the audience to go, comes with a very small toy. And I'm just hoping and praying it's a guy. I just pray for it's a guy because I am ready for the next
1: line. <laughs> I,
0: I'm waiting for him to say that. And I don't know if people know that I'm waiting because they don't bite as much as they used to <laughs> but as soon as they say it. And it's either a guy or a girl. It's like, ooh, I didn't think my jeans were that tight. And, you know, and then I go, <laughs> and then like, <laughs> or even if they don't say it, they say something and then I'll say, did you say comes with a very small toy? And the crowd just, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it, it just twigged when somebody actually said that, you know. I, and it was obvious, but it still works. And I, I look for that.
1: Oh, okay. That's really cool. I never would have imagined that you'd be standing up there waiting for somebody in the audience. <laughs> to,
0: to, to kind of insult you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like,
1: interesting. Yeah. So who are the comedians that have influenced you the most and maybe... Explain how they influenced you and how you discovered them.
0: There's a few. I mean, growing up, Bill Cosby was a big influence, just because I would watch his comedy specials. And I, as a kid and as a young man, just to watch him create a, sh- a show with a chair and a microphone and all these characters was just mm. magical. Mm. I mean, that was a big thing for me. Of course, watching Seinfeld, the sitcom, and then maybe that was the kind of the fame part because he, he was this New York comic and you know he's single and he's popular and he's has this great show and and then Mike McDonald uh, a Canadian comedic icon I remember watching him like in the 70s on some Canadian talk shows and being influenced by him because I remember him doing this bank teller bit you know when banks used to close at oh, six yeah. and he would imitate you know like the guy outside going. <laughs> Yeah. And then, you know, like no money in my pockets because at six o'clock, that's what I used to do back then, too, you know. And yeah. then and then pretending to be the jerky clerks inside going, ah, I'm out of money, you know, pulling his pockets out ah, and, and just and
1: making mocking him, m- right? And
0: yeah. and I got to do a show with Mike's oh. five years ago, so that was a big, huge thing for me to perform wow. with my icon, you know. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, mm-hmm.
1: so. Can you put into words why you would call him your icon? I mean, obviously he's Canadian, but can you put into words what it was about him or is about him?
0: I guess the biggest thing is that I really related to his comedy. I I just thought he was hilarious. And then being a Canadian, he was down in L.A. for a while where he was revered. And in fact, in Canada, too, I mean, he's got the most appearances just for laughs. And... I think when we did our show, it was in Brandon, and I was just the opener to all these heavy-hitter comedians. Mike McDonald was a closer, but the two other guys were just like, credits up the wazoo. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and they didn't know me, and they you know, they thought, oh, okay, this is Chris's friend. And so I did it, and then uh, Chris said, well, you know, Mike smiled Aww. at your set, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know like. And, and he's kind of a stoic guy, right? <laughs> For him, the smile on my set was just like the biggest compliment wow. ever, you know? And and bringing real life thing like he walks on stage and he has a, a bag right and he says this is his set he just doesn't trust the other acts which would be us Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> all those things and we just and it's a great joke but he's it's based on a real thing because as comedians we write things down uh-huh. they don't always come to us we get these books together with all our stuff right and people have lost that. Oh. Like it gets stolen out of a car or something. Oh, okay. Not because, oh, that's Tim Kabashik stuff, we're gonna steal this. Yeah. You know, they just, oh, there's a bag, and they steal it. Mm. But then that could be years of ideas, mm. concepts, uh, scripts,
1: mm-hmm.
0: just gone. It's a great joke, but there's a big truth behind it too. Yes, mm.
1: often there is some truth behind good jokes, right? hope you enjoyed part one of the interview with stand-up comedian Tim Kabashik. To hear part two, look for episode two, part two.